come on a journey with a cinephile. Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. Listeners to episode 103 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, I'm your tour guide here of David Garrett Jr., recording out of Columbus, Ohio. And on this episode here, with how Halloween is falling, I decided I was going to make a little bit of a change here and make this my Halloween episode number two. And it looks like I have featured reviews here of Lamb which I had watched at the Gateway Film Center, and I'll get a little bit more into that one, but it seemed like an interesting movie, so I wanted to go ahead and make it a featured review. And then I've also got it paired up with Halloween 5, The Revenge of Michael Myers, which I actually believe is the last Halloween film that is out that I have now watched with a critical eye and have reviewed. And then also in this episode, I have mini-reviews of Possession, Adam's Family Values, Big Driver, Monster of Frankenstein, Prince of Darkness, and Multiple Maniacs. And if my voice sounds a little bit weird, I actually got married over this weekend and now just getting this episode out here for you. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is not take up any more time for this intro, get you over to a very brief break before I get into those mini reviews. And I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me. My first mini-review this week is going to be Possession from 1981. This was directed by Andujere Zulowski, who also helped write this with Frederick Tutan, who did like the adaptation, and they worked together on adapting this. This stars Isabella Njani, Sam Neill, and Margaret Karstensen. This is a horror drama film that is from a co-production between France and West Germany. This is currently sitting on a 7.4 on IMDb and a 4.1 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being, a woman starts exhibiting increasingly disturbing behavior after asking her husband for a divorce. Suspicions of infidelity soon give way to something more sinister. 
This is a movie that I didn't know much about until getting into horror movie podcast. It is one that pops up quite a bit from people talking about it, so it was high on my list to see. I'm now getting the chance thanks to the Gateway Film Center as they showed the 4K on the big screen. It also fulfilled a few categories on October movie challenges that I'm doing as well. So this movie is hard to talk about. There isn't a whole lot that happens per se, as it's more of a character study of our two leads here of Anna and Mark, who are portrayed by Anjani and Neil, along with seeing how toxic their relationship is. That isn't to say we don't get some outside factors that come into play, though. There is a lot of just seeing these two eat up the scenery that is mesmerizing to watch. It gets my anxiety going since I've been in relationships similar to what we're getting here, just not to this extent. I think I should start is breaking down the characters first. I'll start here with Mark as that is easier. He goes away in the beginning for long stretches for work. He loves his son, but Anna feels neglected. She relays in the start that she wants a divorce, which is fine with. He understands. He knows that he will need to stay around to help raise Bob, so he is getting out of the line of work that he's doing. I'm getting the feeling that it's with the government or contracted there because he makes a lot of money. We see the Berlin Wall quite a bit, and even soldiers from the, you know, more communist side looking over it. I'm thinking part of the length of this is him being gone is that he's going over it. There is secrecy here, which is interesting as he hates that Anna kept things from him. Before getting to that, I will say that I love Neil's performance here, even though he's misogynistic about some things. On the other side of this, we have Anna. She wants a split from Mark, which I can't fault her. She feels neglected. What I don't like is that she cheated on him with Heinrich. I can see it, though, since him being gone drove her into the arms of another. When she informs Mark, she starts to disappear, which she is entitled to do. He doesn't like it, though. Since he learned of the affair, he feels that that's what she's going off to do. It doesn't even seem that he's mad that she's leaving him, but it's more of that he doesn't want another man to have her. I can understand this, as it feels more like he agreed to let her leave, thinking that she would end up coming back to him in the end. It is when he's faced with it falling apart completely that he becomes obsessed. And Johnny does a great job here, even more so that she is Anna, who feels like she has snapped with reality. I also like that she is the character of Helen here, who is the teacher of their son. The other character is interested in Mark. He seems to reciprocate, but more of that out of convenience that she looks just like his wife. Helen is more interested in him than he is in her, though. This is where I'm going to start to delve into their relationship a bit more as I think of what is going on here as well. I'm going to preface that I've only seen this once and most definitely will need another viewing or two. There's a lot that I feel is open to interpretation as well. Anna relays a story to Mark where it looks like she's having a severe miscarriage. This isn't the case though necessarily. Anna has this other apartment where she has something monstrous living. She and it will kill whatever comes there. I'm taking this as her affair that she had an abomination. Both her and Mark are using this to their advantage and it takes odd twists and turns. By the end, I will say that this is pure evil. Now, this is where I'm going to leave my thoughts on the story and I will take this to the acting. I've said my piece on Johnny and Neil that they're both great. Karstensen and then as well as... Heinz Bennett, Johan Hoffer, Carl During, Sean Lawton, and Michael Hogben are all pretty solid to me. The rest of the cast is also good, and they just helped to round this out, but this is more of a character study of our two leads along with their relationship, but these people all play their roles to get them where they end up. So next I'll take us to the effects, cinematography, and the soundtrack. For the former, when I saw Carlo Lombardi's name in the special effects for the creature, I knew this was going to be good. It also doesn't disappoint. I'd say that this is almost Lovecraftian what he did, and I love it. 
The rest of them are good as well. That is the effects. We also get some realistic looking wounds and the blood is on point. Aside from that, cinematography looks amazing. I think we get some interesting angles here and a look at things. When the last thing here would be the soundtrack. I thought that was on point as well and it fit for what the movie was needed. So in conclusion here, I'm glad that I finally saw this movie. It has been a blind spot for me for some time. The acting in this movie is amazing. The story, although not the most complex, is something that there's a lot to it. If you've had a relationship similar to this, it hits home. We don't get a lot in the way of effects, but what we do look good. The cinematography is great. The soundtrack fits for what was needed. I'd say this initial viewing of the movie that it was good, bordering on great. And this is one that I most definitely will be revisiting now that I've seen it. So my rating here for Possession is an 8.5 out of 10. And then up next, I have Adam's Family Values from 1993. This was directed by Barry Sonnenfeld. It comes from the characters from Charles Adams. And it, the screenplay was written by Paul Rudnick. This stars Angelique Houston, Raul Julia, and Christopher Lloyd. This is a comedy fantasy, and I consider this to be a horror film as well, that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.8 on IMDb and a 3.6 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being the Adams family tried to rescue their beloved Uncle Fester from his gold-digging new love, a black widow named Debbie. So this is another sequel that I would watch regularly growing up. I'm sure that I rented it and that it always seemed to be on the movie channels. This is another one that Jamie had not seen and since it's, I see this as a gateway horror film, it worked to rewatch in October for me as well. Now what I have to say is that between this last watch here and the one previous, I liked this one, you know, better. But having watched this almost back to back with the original one here in October, I'm not so sure anymore. That is not to say that I don't like this one anymore or anything to that effect. This one has already established characters and doing a bit more with them, which I think I really liked the last time that I saw this. We are focusing more on Fester and the children during their time at camp than the Adams family themselves. Again, not a bad thing, but just something I've noticed while I was, you know, doing this review. What I will say, though, is I do love Wednesday, who's portrayed by Ricci, and even Pugsley at camp, and he is portrayed by Workman. Wednesday with her crusade against Gary, Becky, Amanda, and the rest of the camp is great. Workman isn't as strong an actor as Ricci, so I think that's part of why I said what I did. They focus on her more, which is smart. I love seeing them trying to break up these two along with Joel, who is portrayed by David Krumholtz. It is comical all the way until the destruction of the camp, which I do enjoy. Something that didn't work for me all that well this time around was the interactions between Uncle Fester, who was Christopher Lloyd, and Debbie, who is Joan Cusack. The early stuff where we have Morticia Gomez and the crew, that all worked. When he goes off with her though, it feels rushed and not as interesting when I watched it this time. Going along with this, what does not work as well is the baby of Pupert isn't as fun when Wednesday and Pugsley aren't trying to kill him either. That feels like a morbid thing to say, but it is the Adams Family, so it's normal. I don't want you to think I hate this though, because the acting here is great and that's what really I enjoy. I think cutting down on the time that we have with Angelique Houston and Raul Julia as part of it, as they're great. Lloyd is still on point with Fester. I don't even hate Cusack as Debbie. She has this weird bubbly personality that she grows tired of as things progress. She is diabolical, which is hard to do when dealing with the oddities of the Adams family. Ricci is also good. Workman is fine, but it's hard when his sister in this movie is just more talented. I do like Carol Kane taking over as Granny. The addition of Krumholtz also works. Carol Stryken and Christopher Hart are solid as well as their two characters. I also like cameos by Dana Ivey, Peter Mennickel, Christine Bransky. 
Mercedes McNabb, Sam McNurry, John Franklin, Cynthia Nixon, Peter Graves, Ian Abercrombie, Tony Shalhoub, and Nathan Lane. The acting here is on point, to be honest. So the last thing I'll go over to would be the effects, cinematography, and the soundtrack. For the former, they're solid. We have some G CGI here that isn't great, but it doesn't ruin the movie either. They went practical where they could. It just isn't as good as the original, but it is far from bad. The cinematography here was well done, and the soundtrack fit for what was needed. If anything, I prefer this to the original in that department. So in conclusion here, the last time that I saw this one, I liked it better than the original one. That doesn't hold up as well for me. I like expanding the story, but some of the things that they focus on aren't as interesting. The acting is on point. The cinematography is well done. The effects aren't as good here, but the soundtrack works better for me. I'd say that this is a fun movie that I would recommend, especially if you want to get children into the horror genre. I consider this to be a horror film, or not everyone does. This is still an above-average movie to me, so my rating here for Adam's Family Values is a 7 out of 10. And I also watched Big Driver. This is a TV movie from 2014. This was directed by Mikhail Solomon, and this comes from a short story by Stephen King, and then the teleplay was written by Richard Christian Matheson. This stars Maria Bello, Ann Dodd, and Will Harris. This is a crime mystery thriller film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.7 on IMDb and a 2.6 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being a famous mystery writer sets out for revenge after a brutal attack. So this is a movie that I heard about but didn't know a whole lot about either. I feel like I would have read the short story from Stephen King, but at the time of watching this, I was drawing a blank. Now I'm watching this as I needed a King-based story for an October movie challenge. Now, this isn't considered horror on IMDb or Letterboxd, but with the subject matter of like rape revenge, I think it's close enough to be considered. So where I want to start is that I was shocked how graphic this movie is. Coming in, I saw it was made for Lifetime. I know that King was the brain behind it, and we even have Matheson penning the teleplay. Now, Jamie isn't a fan of rape revenge, like that subgenre, so when this scene came up, she checked out and I finished this one alone, and I don't blame her a least bit for that. This movie shows more than I was expecting, as I didn't think they would go there. It's definitely, I've seen much worse, but this is a disclaimer that I felt needed to be established. So since I don't remember the story, I'm interested to go back and reread it now. What I liked here is that King is taking an element that we get with his works, like Dreamcatcher, Dr. Sleep, or Gerald's Game, and incorporating it here. What I mean is that Tess is alone for a good portion of this movie. She speaks with Doreen, who she envisions as the lead from her novels, she also talks to the GPS that she has in her car that she calls Tom. Both of these voices are her, of course, but giving it a different sound to it so she can, you know, reason things like this. And I'll be honest, I talk to myself regularly, so seeing her kind of play this out this way and, you know, giving it that whole different feel works for me. Now, seeing these characters do it works for me as well, and it prevents voiceover narration or silence, which I liked. Now, I suppose I should go to our villain here of Big Driver. Now, he does have a real name in it, but I'm going to stick with that. He is an imposing man, and Harris really brought that to the role. What I like about what he does here is that at first he's nice. He lulls her defenses down, and it doesn't take long before he attacks her. At first, though, he seems like he's just a country bumpkin taking advantage of a situation. We see that when she's in the drain pipe, though, this isn't his first and it won't be his last. As Tess puts things together, much like the characters from her novels, she starts to wonder how deep the plot goes. The story is lacking a bit, but I think that's partially due to the time slot they had to work with. Then from here, I'll go to the acting. I've already said my piece on Harris, as I thought he was good as the villain. I will commend Maria Bello for taking this role. 
It couldn't be an easy thing to do, but she's a solid actress and it worked. Seeing her talk to herself felt natural, and I love the different representation she uses in her head. Dowd is solid in her minor supporting role. I also like seeing Joan Jett as a bartender of Betsy Neal. Aside from that, we had Olympia Dukakis, Andre Mietti, and the rest of the cast really rounded this out for what was needed. Then the last thing I'm going to go over would be the effects, cinematography, and the soundtrack. For the former, we don't get a lot of them, but we don't need it. What is amazing was the realistic after effects of the attack on Tess's face. It looked and felt real. Everything here it looked to be was practical. There was some good stuff with the cinematography to hide things as well. I like that it didn't sexualize the rape scene as it makes it feel dirtier without exploiting it. Aside from that, the soundtrack fit for what was needed. The different voices used were something that I've already brought up and it works for me. So in conclusion here, this is a solid Lifetime movie. Something that I didn't know that I'd bring up here. It isn't listed as horror, but I think the subject matter is dark enough to consider that. Especially with how realistic everything is done. The acting carries this movie. Seeing what Bello does is and deals with is heartbreaking, but when she gets her revenge, there's something with that. The rest of the cast is solid. The story isn't too deep, but it also doesn't necessarily need to be either. I like the effects and how this was shot. Soundtrack and sound design worked for what was needed. I'd say this is an above average movie for me. So my rating here for Big Driver is a 7 out of 10. And then up next for you, I have Monster of Frankenstein. And this goes by the original title of Koyufu Denesetsu Kaki Frankun Shuten. This was directed by Yugo Shirakawa. This comes from the novel from Mary Shelley, the comic book from Gary Friedrich and Michael G. Plug. It looks like Akayoshi Saki did the screenplay, and then the English dialogue was uncredibly done by Robert V. Barron and Tom Weiner. Now, I'm not going to give the people that starred in the Japanese version just because I watched this in dubbed, so none of their voices would have been there. But it was done by Luis Shamas, Richard Epcar, and Greg Finley. This is an. There's a lot of different genres attached to this one, but we have animation, drama, family, fantasy, horror, mystery, sci fi. This is from Japan. It has a 6.1 on IMDb and a 2.9 on Letterboxd, with our synopsis here being Japanese animated adaptation of Marvel's The Monster of Frankenstein comic book series. So this is a movie that I'll be honest, I didn't know existed until trying to be more efficient for October movie challenges. I needed a horror cartoon or anime, plus I was looking for another movie from 1981. This one fulfilled both of those categories, so I checked it out. I'll also do a disclaimer here. As I said, since I can't speak Japanese, I'll be putting down, you know, English names as I've already said. I actually think this is an interesting take on the classic tale from Mary Shelley. If you followed my reviews, then you know I've seen quite a few different adaptations. I did know that Marvel used characters like Dracula and Frankenstein's monster, but it's even more interesting to me that Japan would do a TV movie anime adaptation. Now, since the story is one that we've seen a lot of, I do like to find what each version is doing different. This moves fast through the creation of the monster to having Victor return home with Franken following him, and that's what they end up calling the monster here. We get to see a lot of the creature rampage through the countryside. One of the things that makes Frankenstein's monster interesting to me is that it's a tragic character. It is an entity that is born with great strength, but lacks what we learn over years of humanity. Now, in this one, we have people reacting to this monstrous look and size. 
they should know better, but violence is met with violence. This movie focuses quite a bit in the latter second act on hum- humanizing the monster, which is interesting to see that before the third act where everything kind of falls apart again. There's also this concept that I started to lean into of who is the monster here. We saw it prior with like Cannibal Holocaust, but this isn't too far removed from that. I'm not saying that Cannibal movie was the first one to kind of give this idea, but it's just the first one that always pops into my head. There is a mob that gets together to kill Franken that ends up making more problems and solving what they were sent out to do, which is kind of interesting with movies that are being made even today. Where I would go next would be what is being done as an anime. It has this animation that I grew up with, so that's fun. We get some brutal things that are done, like when the assistant of Zukel is attacked early on. He even shows the after effects of his eye. It could be more violent, but it doesn't need to be. I'm actually interested in reading the comic to see how similar they are. I think this would be impressive if more of the scenes were taken straight from that source material, where I'd give more credit to that comic since I've never actually, you know, read a horror comic as well. Now going from there, I wanted to briefly talk about the voice acting because I think it's fine. The voices match how I thought the characters would be. I won't be able to comment on the actual Japanese voice actors, but all of the ones for the English version fit. I even like the Epcar and possibly even Hoshi Komatsu, as I don't know if the growls were redubbed or not. I thought they both make this creature feel realistic, and I also thought the soundtrack that was also in there worked for what was needed. So with all that said about the movie, and in conclusion, this is a solid adaptation of the source material. I think it does well in humanizing the monster while also looking at the monstrous nature of humanity. The voice acting fit the characters for me, thought the animation was solid, and it makes me want to see if I can seek out the Marvel comic. Other than that, the soundtrack also fit for what was needed. I'd say this is an above average adaptation, and I would be willing to check this one out again for sure. So my rating here for Monster of Frankenstein is going to be a 7 out of 10. And I also got to watch Prince of Darkness from 1987. This was written and directed by John Carpenter. This stars Donald Pleasance, Lisa Blout, and Jameson Parker. This is a horror film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.7 on IMDb and a 3.6 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a group of graduate students and scientists uncover an ancient canister in an abandoned church, but when they open the container, they inadvertently unleash a strange liquid and an evil force on all humanity. So this was a first-time watch for me. I actually decided to check it out for an October movie challenge when I needed to watch another movie for my birth year of 1987 and still needed a popular horror film that was a blind spot. I've seen most every Carpenter film, so this was ticking off another box to get one step closer to that. So where I want to start is that I'm a sucker for religious-based horror, which we are getting here. What makes this even better is that they're incorporating science in this as well. I'm kicking myself for not having seen this earlier, to be honest, as it ticks a lot of boxes for me. This idea of mixing mythology with science is where I want to start. We have this priest knowing that something is up, so he reaches out to a friend of his, uh, Professor Birak. And what I find interesting here is that he teaches theory, but it's like physics type theory. This was revealed when Brian and Catherine, who are two pretty much leads here, are talking and he comments how they don't get a lot of good looking women in these type of classes. We see that this hurts her because it seems like she has a past where men haven't treated her the greatest and doesn't find this to be very funny. Now getting away from this though, Birak and the priest are combining religion with science. They are taking the Christian religion and mixing it with extraterrestrials. The story of Satan being kicked out of heaven is explained here that there was an old god that walked on earth and it locked its child in a canister. 
Jesus was an alien that spoke about this and gained followers. The church believed him while also fearing what he was saying. They held on to his beliefs and used religion to gain followers. I love incorporating all of this. There is also this great idea with shared dreams and the science behind it when it is being, you know, broadcast. So with that fleshed out, we early in this movie get to see ants in a few different places. This could have been just a nest of them or them climbing on people. I took down the note of hive mind from here. This gets realized in the movie in a creepy way. It starts with the homeless population led by Alice Cooper standing and watching this church. They lock our people in and those that get out are attacked. Once the stakes rise inside, the liquid inside of this canister is able to take control of others as well. I thought this was creepy and it gives a vibe of a zombie movie as well. So that should be enough for the story, so I'll move next to the acting. It is nice to see Donald Pleasance here, even though he has a smaller role as his priest. He still was solid. And then we also have Jameson Parker as our lead, and I thought he was fine. He has a great mustache, but I think he kind of fades into the background a bit. The same thing could be for Lisa Blout for me. We lose her for a long stretch. There is nothing wrong with the performances, though. And then some of the other people I just want to kind of give credit to here would be like Victor Wong, Dennis Dunn, Susan Blanchard, Anne-Marie Howard, Ann Yen, Ken Wright, Dirk Blocker, Peter Jason, and Jesse Lawrence Ferguson as well. I just kind of want to commend all of them, including Cooper here, who was also, you know, zombie-like, as I think the performance in this movie are pretty strong, and some of them are quite eerie as well. Then the last thing to go into would be the effects, cinematography, and soundtrack. For the former, we don't get a lot of them, but it also doesn't necessarily need them. Things were done practical, which is great. The look of the characters as they change was creepy. Things were done more subtle here, and the images were used to raise the creep factor for me. I'll also commend the cinematography for that. The movie was shot well, which helps to hide things. And then the last thing would be the soundtrack. I've actually listened to this one for years, as it was has a very Carpenter vibe to it and adds tension for me. I also like incorporating more choir music, as it has that religious vibe. So in conclusion here, this is a movie that I'm, I'm mad at myself actually for not seeing earlier. Do I think this is the best Carpenter film? No, not necessarily to me, but it does a lot of things at work. I love incorporating religious mythology with science to explain things here. The acting isn't great, but it also isn't the focus. I like what they do with the effects, the cinematography, and the soundtrack. It all helps to build atmosphere that is needed, and this was a good movie to me. And I'd still put this in the upper echelon of Carpenter films, in my opinion. So my rating here for Prince of Darkness is an 8 out of 10. And I also got to watch Multiple Maniacs from 1970. This was written and directed by John Waters. It stars Divine, David Lockery, and Mary Vivian Pierce. This is a comedy crime horror film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.7 on IMDb and a 3.5 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being three determined women, Divine, Cookie, and Mink Stoll, set out to solve the Sharon Tate murders. And that synopsis is a little bit misleading, and I'll get into that here in a second. But this is a movie that, I'll be honest, I didn't know if I heard about it until looking at Letterboxd for horror movies from 1970. Once this started, there were some things that seemed familiar, and my guess is that I partially was included in a documentary that involved another of John Waters' films, as he did like a lot of midnight movie-type stuff. When I saw that he was behind this and that Divine starred, I was even more curious. So what I liked here is that Waters is from Baltimore. He decided that he wanted to make a movie and rounded up people that would help. This isn't his feature film debut, but it was early in his career. Due to the low budget he was working with and being outside of the normal system, it has an art house feel for sure. 
I don't know what Waters' sexual proclivity is, and personally, I don't care. What I like about him, though, is that he likes to expose the darker side of sexuality that society decides to ignore. Case in point is hiring a drag queen like Divine to be the lead in a few projects. There's nothing wrong with this, and it isn't afraid to showcase it. When I say the darker side, this is showing what we have desires, and being different isn't a bad thing. Now, for this movie, it is an interesting concept. We have career criminals. They're using this cavalcade to rob people. Divine has worked her way up to murder. Mr. David, along with her as a criminal... Now, the problem I see with this lifestyle is that eventually you can no longer trust those around you, which makes sense. Divine and Mr. David have fallen out of love, and she is vindictive. Mr. David is only in the stretch that he knows that she will try to control him. It is interesting that the synopsis states they're trying to solve the Tate murders. This isn't true. She is stating that Mr. David committed a murder, and he was involved with the Tate ones as a way to control him. I saw some trivia that there was going to be more of a way to connect this, but it seems like it was changed to not be, you know, insensitive. And the last bit for the story that I'm going to go into here would be that this movie is wild. We get to meet our characters, we just have a lot of weird things that some people would find offensive. There's a sexual encounter in a church that is coupled with low-budget, almost blasphemous takes on religious stories. We see that the craziness of this character finally come to a head with everyone trying to kill each other that leaves Divine to go on a rampage. It gets wilder as we go, to be honest. So that's enough for the story, so I'll shift this over to the acting. Divine is probably the best performance here. I love that we establish that she is bad, doesn't like to take anything from anyone, and will kill at the drop of a hat. It feels like she was raised in the gutter and it has changed her. She isn't trying to better herself or her daughter, so she is creating the cycle of being a criminal. Then from there, I would just say that David Lockery, Mary Vivian Pierce, Mink Stoll, Cookie Mueller, Edith Massey, and then the rest of the cast just kind of rounded this out for what was needed. The acting is amateur, and that gives a bit of charm here. Then the last thing I'll go into here would be the cinematography effects and soundtrack. For the former, this is shot in black and white. That helps to hide things. I was quite impressed with what they did here. Waters and the cinematography just have an eye for it for sure. Now, being black and white does help to hide the effects. The blood looks fine. The guts that we get look like they're actually real meat, so that helps. There is something wild that happens, and I don't know why. I'm chalking this up to Divine being insane and almost nightmare logic. The soundtrack was also fine and fit for what was needed. So in conclusion here, this is a wild film. I do come to expect that when I see Waters' name attached. I'm not entirely sure what we are getting here outside of seeing a bunch of criminals descend into madness and turning on each other. The acting is amateur, and that gives a bit of charm to the art house feel. Divine is the best of the bunch. The cinematography is good, and the effects were solid enough, and the soundtrack fit. This won't be for everyone, but it is worth a watch, to be honest, for how crazy this is. So my rating here for Multiple Maniacs is a 6.5 out of 10. And that will be all I have for mini reviews for this week, so I'm going to get you over to the trailer of my first featured review.
Break even no clue. I may not always love you, but long as there are stars above you, you never need to doubt it. I'll make you so sure about it. Fire! God only knows what I'd be without. Take it back. And for my first featured review on this episode, it's going to be Lamb. This is from 2021. This was directed by Vladimir Johannesson, who kind of helped write this with Shazon. This stars Numi Rapaz, Hilmer Schneir Gunnarsson, and Bjorn Hilner Haraldsson. If I mispronounce those names or any of the ones that I'm going to say here in a second, I do apologize. And the other two people in this movie are Ingvard Sigardsson and Esther Bibi. This is a drama horror mystery film that is a co-production amongst Iceland, Sweden, and Poland. This is a 6.7 on IMDb and a 3.3 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a childless couple, Maria and Ingvard, discover a mysterious newborn on their farm in Iceland. The unexpected prospect of family brings them much joy before ultimately destroying them. So it was a movie that I was intrigued when I learned of it. The trailer was being shown at the Gateway Film Center, and I will admit that I did watch part of it, but learning that this was an A24 and a horror film, it went on my list immediately to check out. It was also a bonus watch for an October challenge, so that also helps there to you know catch this at the Gateway Film Center like I did. So before I get into the movie itself, let me do some featured notes. And we have our director here of Johansson has two films to his credit. This is his first in genre, though, and the only one that I've seen. The writer of Shijon has five credits. Two of them are horror, with the first one being Rankovic Whale Watching Massacre from 2009. I love that title. I hadn't heard of it till now, but I am intrigued. And it does look like he also wrote The Northman with Robert Eggers. Then moving to our actors, we have Rapace here has 40 credits. Of them, I've seen nine, with three of them being the original Swedish version of the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo series, where she gets to play Elizabeth Solander in that. She was also in Sherlock Holmes' A Game of Shadows and Passion, which I've seen both of those. Now, she has five in horror, with two of them being shorts that go along with her being in Alien Covenant. And I've also seen her in Prometheus before this one here as well. Now... Goodnason has 30 films. This is the only one that's in horror and the only one that I've seen. And then finally we have Haraldson. I did catch him in Eurovision, the story of Fire Saga with Will Ferrell and Rachel McAdams. That was that kind of comedy, musical, singing type thing that was on Netflix. Haraldson has one other horror film which was called Graves and Bones from 2014. I have not heard of that one and this is the only one thing that I've seen him in. 
So much like the synopsis states, we start off getting a look at life of this married couple of Maria and Ingvar. They have a farm where they plant crops and tend to sheep. Helping them is their dog and cat. They don't talk to each other much, but I mean, I guess if you're just living alone like that, not really interacting, you don't necessarily need to. But we also get an interesting conversation about time travel and about how scientists prove that, theoretically, it could work. Ingvard states that he'd be interested in going to the future to see how the world is, where Maria wants to go back into the past, and I thought this was kind of a fitting thing that I'll bring back up later. Now, one of their chores is sometimes to help, you know, lambs that are being born. There is one that they remove that is quite different. The two of them take it inside and give it special care. They even have to kill what I'm assuming is the mother as she is quite concerned with her child that has been taken. And I mean, Maria yells at her a couple different times and they finally, you know, have to deal with it in a much more brutal manner. At least she does. Now, their world comes into question when Ingvard's brother arrives, uh, Peter, who's portrayed by Haraldson. He questions them and does some interesting things to this lamb that they're caring for. There is something much darker here that is stalking them and has a special interest in this child. So that's where I'm going to leave my recap as there isn't a lot to the story of this movie. It is much more of a character study of these two parents and how this special child changes them and even a taste of the outside world coming into play here. Now where I'm going to start then would be breaking the characters down. As I said earlier, Maria is interesting to me as she wants to change the past. I get the idea that she either lost a child or could just never have one. There's also a possibility that her and Ingvar just got too busy with, you know, running this farm that they never put the full effort in. Regardless, this seems like a loveless marriage. That is until this lamb is brought into their lives. When they see their demeanors change, it is probably there the whole time, but just something was missing in their life for them to start to see, you know, the joy that they have now. Then the other side, we have Ingvar. He seems like much more comfortable with their current world. I take that he wants to go into the future as he's much more of a dreamer. That's not to say that when this land comes into their life, he isn't elated. He most definitely is. When his brother arrives, this adds an interesting dynamic. I take it that he's showing the outside world to, you know, their kind of isolated living situation. You know, Maria and Ingvar stick to the farm. Peter finds an it odd what they're doing and makes comments. His brother doesn't want to hear it. If this couple tried to live in the city... It is what this child would have to deal with. Now, there's a great tense moment with him and the child, and I'm trying to keep this vague as possible to not spoil this, as I think this needs to be experienced. And there also might have been a thing where Maria and him might have had a little bit of a kind of love interest, possibly, because he does come onto her a few different times to the point where it kind of annoys her. So that should be enough for the characters, so I'll go next to the acting. Rapace is an actress I'm a fan of. She does a great job at this woman here. I'll go back to that one little comment with her body language and facial expressions really kind of just convey so much about her since they don't really talk, at least in the beginning. She conveys so much without needing to say anything. Playing off her well is Goodnason. I think he does a solid job too. Much like her non-verbal cues, I get a lot even when they're not talking. I'll also give credit to Haraldson to the tension he creates by showing up, and then I'll also, you know, give... You know, brief little thing here to Sigardson and Bibi, who also, you know, have minor capacities, but help with what they need there. And the last thing I'd go into would be the cinematography, effects, and soundtrack. For the former, this movie is shot beautifully. This is from the landscapes to the interesting camera angles that we get. I was thoroughly impressed. Like, we get some cool ones. We'll be inside looking out of a window outside or, you know, vice versa. Just stuff like that. And I think they do, it crafted it so well. 
We also get some interesting visual effects on top of that. I know a lot of this was done with CGI, but it was pretty seamless to me. Even more so is what happens at the climax. As for the soundtrack, I thought it fit for what was needed without necessarily standing out. The use of animal noises, though, definitely adds a creepy vibe at times that worked for me. So there was a couple bits of trivia here on the IMDb page that I was going to briefly go over, is that this is the first film that Rapaz speaks Icelandic as a language that she learned while living there as a child. In preparation for this role, Rapaz also spent time on an Icelandic farm and even learned how to actually help a sheep bring a baby lamb into the world, which is kind of a cool thing that, you know, she has enough methodness there where she would, you know, learn how to do that. So in conclusion here, this is an interesting movie. It is a bit hard to talk about without going into spoilers, but there is more to it than just the crux of what changes with this couple's lives. We have two great performances here from Rapaz and Goodnatsen. That is, almost feels like they could be these characters. There's an interesting commentary about protecting your way of life and the worry that your children, you know, could be with the outside world. The movie looks amazing, the effects were solid, and the soundtrack fit for what was needed. I would say that after this viewing, I'd say it's a good movie. I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to go much higher than the rating I gave to it, but I do plan on giving this a second watch. So my rating here for Lamb is going to be an 8 out of 10. Now, I'm not going to do a spoiler section as I do want people to see this movie as it, you know, at the time of recording this had really just came out. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to the trailer of my second featured review. Sheriff? They want you down at the cemetery. Today in the cemetery, somebody dug up a coffin. It was a coffin of a nine-year-old girl. You've come back to us, Mark. When are they going to realize that she is not him, she's just a child? They know that Michael Myers is her uncle. That she attacks her stepmother. That's why they fear her. Especially on Halloween. You are afraid. You are afraid the whole thing might start to happen again. How many people did he kill last year? Have you forgotten? But you never looked into his face, did you? You never saw his eyes. You never saw that nothing, no expression, blank. My memory goes back 12 years. I prayed. That he would burn in hell. But in my heart, I knew that hell would not have him. Michael Myers is outside. The National Guard will take him to a maximum security facility. But he'll stay till the day he dies. Never die.
And for my second featured review on this episode is going to be Halloween 5, The Revenge of Michael Myers. This is from 1989. This was directed by Dominique Othnan Gerard. This comes from characters by John Carpenter, Deborah Hill, and then it was co-written amongst Michael Jacobs, our director, as well as Shem Bitterman. This stars Donald Pleasance, Daniel Harris, and Ellie Cornell, while also featuring Bo Starr, Jeffrey Landman, Tamara Glynn, Jonathan Chapin, Matthew Walker, Wendy Foxworth, Betty Corvalho, Troy Evans, Frankie Como, David Urson, Harper Roisman, Karen Alston, Max Robinson, Stanton Davis, and Jack North. And then also I should point out here that Don Shanks is Michael Myers in this one, as well as another character. This is a horror thriller film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.1 on IMDb and a 2.2 on Letterboxd. With our synopsis here being one year after the events of the previous movie, The Shape returns to Haddonfield once again in an attempt to kill his now mute niece. So this is another one of those movies in the franchise that I saw a lot growing up. It always seemed to be on the movie channels or part of Fright Fest on AMC. And this is the first time that I'm actually watching this with a critical eye, though. So before I get into the movie itself, let me do some of the featured notes here. And I'll start with our director here of Othanen Gerard. I might not be saying that right, so I do apologize. But he has 20 credits. I've seen two of them. Five of his movies are in horror, with the first one being After Darkness from 1985. Now, I actually learned about this one, and I'll get a little bit more into why I have, but it's thanks to Joe Bob Briggs, and but I have not seen that movie yet. He followed it up with The Hospice from 1987 before this movie here. He also did Night Angel from 1990, which I haven't heard of, and then the last one he did I have seen of Omen 4, The Awakening, which was all right. As a writer, he just has this in After Darkness. His co-writer of Bitterman has nine credits. This is his first and only one in horror, and the only one that I've seen. The last writer is Jacobs, and he has two credits, but this is the only one in horror and the only one that I have seen. Moving to our actors here, I've actually gone over Donald Pleasance as well as the last person I'll go over here, but just kind of give an update, I've seen 12 of his 181 credits. Of those, 10 are in horror, where he had a total of 40 in the genre. Danielle Harris is one of my most watched for this year, as I think I've seen six of her movies. For her, she has 68 total acting credits. This and the movie previous were her first two, and then half of what she's done have been in horror. I've seen 11 of these and 12 overall. A majority are the Halloween and Hatchet movies that I've seen, though. Now, the last one I'll look at is Cornell. Now, she's the other one that I've gone over last year when I did Halloween 4. She has 12 credits, 9 are in horror, and I've seen most. She was in this Halloween and the previous one, plus she was in House of the Dead and its sequel, as well as I've seen her in the movie Dead and Deader. So to get into this here, we start off seeing the events that end Michael Myers in the previous movie. He falls down a shaft and it turns out to be a mine. Michael crawls over to a river where he is found by a mountain man who is portrayed by Harper Roisman. He takes care of Michael and then one year later on Halloween Eve, Michael wakes up, kills this guy before heading back to Haddonfield. During this time, Jamie Lloyd, who is portrayed by Daniel Harris, has been living in a children's clinic. She attacked her foster mother, but her mother survived the ordeal. The events have caused her to go mute. When Michael wakes up, she goes into a trance where it looks like almost like a seizure. She experiences Michael killing the mountain man and freaks out. Her nightmares cause her to, you know, kind of have a similar reaction as well. 
Watching over her is Dr. Loomis, who's betrayed by Pleasance, and he knows that Michael is out there and just waiting to return. The other doctors think that she's just having, you know, kind of medical issues here where he knows there's something else. Visiting Jamie in the hospital is her foster sister of Rachel, who is betrayed by Cornell. As well as her friend Tina Williams, who's betrayed by Foxworth, and then Rachel's dog of Max. They are scolded for bringing the dog in by Loomis, and neither of the young women are fans of how he treats Jamie. This young girl isn't alone, though. She has befriended a boy of Billy Harper, portrayed by Landman, who also stays in this clinic. Michael has returned to Haddonfield. Jamie gets a psychic connection, and she knows that he is stalking Rachel. Rachel has to decide for Halloween to go visit her parents at a cabin or to stay back with Tina and some of her friends. Jamie knows that Michael is nearby, and Loomis believes her. The police are called, but they don't find anyone, and when Max somehow got out, he returns, so Rachel just thinks that things are just normal. She's just spooked. Once they leave, though, Michael kills Rachel. This sets events into motion as Michael comes for Jamie, leaving bodies in his wake. So that's where I'm going to leave my recap as I get you up to speed here. Now, I gave this a rewatch for a couple reasons. This is the last film in the Halloween franchise that I haven't reviewed. Since my Halloween holiday episodes are coming up, it made sense to knock this out. It also fulfilled criteria for a couple October movie challenges that I'm doing. And one of those is which is to watch with a horror host. So I watched this with Joe Bob Briggs as part of the last drive-in from a couple years ago. He had some interesting insights that I will incorporate here. So where I want to start is my thoughts is I don't mind the setup here. Michael Myers survived what happened the previous Halloween. And, you know, this is a franchise, so you'll have things like this. So I can, I can overlook that. He comes back the following, you no know, Halloween. And I can't hold my issues here with the previous movie because, you know, we're moved away from that. This movie has Michael upping the body count even more, and we get to see quite a bit of those deaths on screen this time. When I saw that K&B to the effects, that makes sense. I also don't mind the fact that Jamie is mute from the events from the previous Halloween. That seems like a logical thing that would happen from a traumatic night. I'll even go on to say that Harris' performance in this movie was good for a child. I don't even hate the psychic connection here, as this is all just kind of setting the stage for the reveal for the next movie. We get to see the Mark of Thorn as well being tattooed on Michael's wrist as well as this person who is the man in black and we don't really get to know much about him who is also portrayed by Shanks. This stuff all works for me. I don't even mind Loomis finally snapping and putting Jamie's life in danger just to try to kill Michael once and for all. I just don't buy some of the things that he does. Now Joe Bob Briggs brought up some interesting information here. Prior to taking the meeting with Mustafa Akkad, our co-writer and director here had not seen any of the movies in the series. He binged all the Halloween movies at the time along with A Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th in prep. It appears that during the meeting there was already a script that incorporated elements from the previous movie to put into this. That was thrown away and it was rewritten. I think this is a misstep. Where you end with Jamie becoming like her uncle could have added some elements here for me. You can still bring back Michael but abandon the idea doesn't work for me. Moving from there... I also don't like that Michael goes back into a coma for another year. It just feels lazy. They should have shown him needing to nurse himself back to health or something along these lines. I can believe that. Having him being ready a year later is believable and that's fine. There are just simple things that could have been incorporated to make it work better. So that should be enough for the story in general as I don't think it's horrible. It just has issues. The acting I thought was good. Pleasance plays it well that Loomis has finally snapped. His madness matches Michael's. 
I've already said that I liked Harris here. Cornell was solid in her limited role as Rachel. I liked bringing back Bo Star as Sheriff Ben Meeker. Landman was fine along with Foxworth, Tamara Glenn, Jonathan Chapin, and Matthew Walker. If I have issues, it would also be with Chapin's character of Mikey, as I'm not sure why they made him a greaser, because I don't think those were even around anymore by the time this movie was made. The rest of the cast was fine, but no one just really kind of stands out. I should also give credit here to Shanks because I think he has a good size and I think this might be the biggest guy to actually play Michael Myers and it's also kind of interesting as he is a Native American or at least half Native American so this is the first time anybody of this race has also taken on the character. And I'll take this next to the effects, cinematography, and the soundtrack. I've already said that I think K&B did a great job with the effects here. I'm glad they ramped that up. The cinematography was good. I think the movie is shot well. If I have issues here, it's trying to rely on the jump scares too much. It feels like our director didn't believe that it was scary enough and that would enhance it while I think it kind of hurts it. The soundtrack here was solid since Alan Howarth was there to put in a solid score. It isn't the best, but I don't really have issues there. Now, there's a lot of trivia on the IMDb page. I'm not going to do all of it. I'm just going to throw a few things here. They are trying to recreate the hairbrushing scene. It's not the same house design, but I understand what they're doing there. This is the lowest grossing movie in the entire series. I don't like the mask in this movie. That was a major issue that I did have. I did want to bring that up here as well. Now, Don Shanks was originally set to wear the same mask that Wilbur wore in the previous movie, but in order to retain consistency between the movies, the mask did not fit him, so a new one was made. And I think that's kind of an issue here. I know that the laundry shoot was very difficult and scary to kind of film. Now, this is something that Joe Bob had brought up. There's actually a few different times where they put some of these characters' lives in general with some of the effects, and I do think that's kind of crazy that they actually did it that way. But that's all I'm going to do for trivia, as a lot of it's very wordy. So, in conclusion here, this movie is continuing the path that the Halloween series, you know, not living up to what it could be. There are elements introduced from the previous movie that were abandoned. There are things incorporated here that don't make sense to set the stage for the next movie, which I don't like. Not that I don't like the next movie. That's not what I'm necessarily getting at here. I just don't... You need to kind of explain it here to make it work better because you can't just do this movie to set the stage for the next. If you aren't going to explain it, then you can't use it as I was saying. What I will say, though, is that the acting is good. The effects were solid along with the cinematography and soundtrack. I don't hate this movie as I have nostalgia for how many times I've seen it. There are just missed opportunities. I'd still say this is just over average. So my rating here for Halloween 5, The Revenge of Michael Myers, is a 6 out of 10. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is I'm not going to do a spoiler section, but I am going to get you over to a very brief break before I close out this show. I would like to thank you for listening to episode 103 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. Then just to close everything out here, if you would like to send me an email, you can send that at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. If there's anything in there that you would like to have read on the show, just let me know. If not, if you just want to give me feedback for any of the reviews I have on here or how the show is going or anything like that, just go ahead and send those there. If you'd like to read any of the written reviews from anything on this episode or any of the past ones, that's Reviews of the Dead, and that's HorrorReview.WebNode.com. And then if you'd like to become friends with me on Facebook, I'm David Mishkin Garrett Jr. On Twitter, I'm Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, I'm David OSU. And over there, I'll be posting all of the reviews that I watch, horror and non-horror alike. If you'd like to follow my Instagram, it's DavidOSU87. And then the Journey with a Cinephile Instagram is Journey with a Cinephile. Both of those will be having all of the movie posters of anything that I am reviewing over on there. 
And the last thing I'd ask you to do is that whatever podcasting device you're listening to me on, if you go ahead and hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode, that would be greatly appreciated. And then on top of that, if you're able to rate and review just so I can figure out what I'm doing that you like and what I'm doing that you don't like, as well as to get out to more listeners out there as well. Now, I am going on my honeymoon here at the end of this week that this episode is coming out on. So what I'm trying to do is, you know, record some stuff ahead of time, but I will be having my, in honor of the 22 Shots of Moods and Horror and what they kind of started over there, I am doing my Italian Horror episode number 8, where I'll be having Four Flies on Grey Velvet as the, I get into it on the episode there, but it's the highest rated Italian horror film that I have not seen yet. And then I also will be pairing that up. Since that's a giallo, you know, I'm going to try to do a little bit of a slasher film here with Fear Street Part 1, 1994. Those will be the two featured reviews, and I will have more of the mini-reviews from anything that were for October Movie Challenges, and then just kind of going back to things that I was going to watch regardless. I think that's all I need to get you up to speed with there. So what I will say there in closing is that whatever you do today, I hope you're safe in doing it and have a great time out there. This is your tour guide of David Garrett Jr., and I am signing off. It had been a wonderful evening. And what I needed now to give it the perfect ending. <laughs>